the retrograde approach podcast episode 11 meet the expert intravascular ultrasound may turn syndrome acute aliofemoral dbt with mr iman bayat Welcome to the Retrograde Approach. My name is Dr. Yogi-san Sukumaran, and tonight it is my immense pleasure and honour to introduce the man himself that ensured the fellowship exam happened in Melbourne, the tibial hunter, Mr. Santhara. You're trying to bait me, Yogi. You're trying to bait me to respond to your banter. It's not working. So let's just move right along. Mate, let's just... I'm just going to say it. There is no exam in Melbourne without Sam Farah. And um, it is, an, I think, an absolute, uh, the on, only way I can put this to you, mate, is uh, it is a huge, huge effort on your behalf that it, that we got there. And um, on behalf of myself, uh, let's just say I'm, uh, you've done a fantastic job and uh, well done, Sam. Thanks, Yogi. It was a team effort, college, Basu multiple people at the Austin who allowed it to go ahead. But uh, I think in the end, it was a great success and I wish all the candidates the best. They find out their results in less than two weeks. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think um, it was not that long ago, you and I were sitting on the tail end of the exam itself and uh, we remember this experience vividly. Um, So uh, I would say to all of them out there, we send you our very best wishes and we're hoping to have you guys join us in the uh, as colleagues very shortly. That'd be an immense privilege and joy. So, Yogi, uh, very excited to welcome uh, Mr. Iman Bayat uh, to the podcast uh, this week. He's the head of vascular surgery at the Northern Hospital and head of complex venous disorders at the Northern. And um, have a very exciting episode this week where we talk about all things ileofemoral, including May Turner compression, DVT, and of course, intravascular ultrasound. Iman, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. No, thanks very much for having me, Sam and Yogi. Iman, you're our first expert guest on the podcast in what is a reasonably interesting and complex area of discussion, but also an area that's got some complexity for junior surgeons and trainees alike. Um, but tonight, we're going to tackle the topic of intravascular ultrasound in the first instance, and then hopefully progress that to a discussion about uh, alifemoral DVT, which is uh, an area which uh, a lot of juniors, uh, a lot of trainees coming through have seen a variety of ways of management. Um, but we really are looking at the future and looking to yourself to guide us through some of that discussion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can't wait. So uh, I guess to to start the discussion off tonight, um, intravascular ultrasound uh, is part of the evolving armament of vascular surgeons. And like other techniques, we've been able to evolve some of these techniques from interventional cardiology, in particular IVIS, which initially got its roots in the 80s through their service. But as we have evolved as a more percutaneous relevant specialty, uh, we've definitely seen its role in providing detailed pretreatment diagnostic information on the extent and severity of disease, whether that's arterial and venous presentations. 
and the fascinating aspect of intravascular ultrasound is it evolves our own interest in ultrasound technology that we uh, participate in our training program and then use day to day in our clinical work and the ability to take an image that's created perpendicular to the long axis of the catheter uh, through an intravascular means um, to then provide information about the vessel being insinated. Uh, and now with the post-processing that's available, this provides some amazing information about real-time diameters, circumference and vessel areas, which allows us to then determine the treatment modality that we wish to entertain, but then also the outcome of the treatment that we perform as well. Now, Aman, one of the great challenges that we as trainees in the Australasian environment is our ability to, I guess, participate and um, get exposure to intravascular ultrasound, especially given the difficulty of remuneration in the public health sector. And so not a lot of trainees may have I've had exposure to intravascular ultrasound. And so I thought it'd be a good place to start by just asking you about how you got yourself involved with IVIS, where you might've seen it during your training, and then how have you evolved that in your practice as you've gone on as a consultant? Certainly, uh, Yogi. So I, um, my first uh, experience of seeing IVIS was during my training at Royal Perth. I was set to there and like many centers that trial a particular device, uh, IVIS was trialed there. Uh, uh, Professor Patrice Moipetai uh, there was keen on new technology and IVIS was brought in and, and for a short period of time, we trialed it there. And my understanding of it was as much as a set two trainee uh, would have at that stage, because I was more um, interested in knowing how to do it, uh, you know, downhill puncture or, or do a femoral endarterectomy. And, uh, but it was interesting to see that this technology exists it's simple to use and um, it gives more meaningful answers. And then later on, when I did my set four training in Cambridge, there was a focus being developed around complex venous disorders and you'd hear the role of IVIS there. So this is around uh, 2013 and you know, 12, 13 years had passed since the, the work by Raju and Neglin and the States that demonstrated that IVIS was superior to single plane venography and then later multi-plane venography in identifying uh, uh, venous obstruction and compression lesions in the iliofemoral section. Uh, and so already uh, people knew that if you wanted to do complex venous work, this is one of the most important tools that you need to have. Um, but we didn't have IVIS in Cambridge. They were interested in getting it. But you can see that you're already, you're, you've seen something and then you're, you're seeing experts saying that we absolutely need this. So it's already embedded in your mind that this is an important piece of technology. Uh, Post-fellowship, I had the opportunity to spend six weeks uh, in North Carolina. And there I really saw IVIS used in all aspects of practice. You know, I saw a um, a thoracic stent graft deployed uh, by using IVIS to, to mark the left subclavian or did a full Nelix device used without using any contrast. Only at the end, a shot of contrast was used because um, to just show that the, 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 there's a completion venographer angiogram, but that even that wasn't necessary. And certainly in their work around complex venous disorders. So there I saw it being used and um, 
And then when I got back to Melbourne, I was determined that this was something that we had to have. And then we went about finding the ways to get it for our institution. And the beauty of IVIS is that once you get hold of it, the learning curve is very steep and uh, you, you get to use it and get meaningful answers from it very quickly. Yeah, and I think um, it's, it's funny, man. I can reflect on your experience being very similar to mine. I, in my second year of training, I, I was in a centre that did a large volume of venous stenting work, which we did without IVIS. Um, and I can appreciate the challenges on the other side where we didn't have IVIS and how do you size uh, the appropriate stents uh, to the vessel that you're treating, for instance. Um, and then moving on, as Sam and I prepared for our fellowship exam, we'd always um, chuckle about how um, we'd come up with these model answers for the treatment of blunt thoracic aortic injuries and the role of IVIS there, because one of the major challenges with that pathology, of course, is sizing your stent to the aorta in an under, underperfused trauma trauma situation with a CT that's providing a single static image at that particular time. Um, and um, Sam being the pertinent expert when it comes to delivering a model exam answer, always through an IVIS just to sort of sum it out <laughs> just in the end. But it really did make sense. And I guess we, we reflected on what was going on around us and how our Australasian experience thus far didn't have that as being a routine part of practice. Uh, but hearing you and especially hearing how you've been able to introduce it to the Northern is incredibly encouraging because uh, for all you guys listening out there, I think it's about taking technology to the next level and trying to introduce it into practice so that we can deliver better outcomes for patients. And I hope you agree with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So um, Iman, you may not have realized, but uh, in the recent fellowship exam that uh, just passed last weekend, they got asked, uh, how would you size a venous stent? And I think that's an interesting mm -hmm. question given all, almost no trainee or uh, would have had access to IVIS. So I'm curious, first of all, how, how you would size a venous stent without sure. IVIS and then how would you do it with IVIS and what are some of the differences you've noticed in your practice afterwards? Sure. So if we talk about the iliofemoral section, we have to divide it into two distinct lesions. What are the non-obstructive iliac vein lesions, uh, uh, which are the nivel lesions? And then you have the chronic venous obstruction. Um, with the nivel lesions, uh, sizing is more important. There's two, size, two parts to sizing, and that is one is the diameter, and the other one is the length. Um, with regards to the diameter, you would always have some pre-compression dilatation of the common iliac vein. So you can't quite size to that. I think what's important is to, first of all, assess the degree of Mayferner compression. Because as we all know, the main, the Achilles heel of these nivel lesions is stent migration. You know, that is a catastrophic complication which you want to avoid at all costs. So one of the practices that we've had at the Northern is we don't stent 50% Mayferner compressions. You'd have to have 60, 70. Most of our patients have more than 80% com compression. So you know that once you've deployed the stent, it's going to be held down by that uh, Mayferner compression, and it's going to stop it from migrating up. And then it ter in terms of sizing, once you know that there is an 80% compression, the next step is whether 
that stent is going to cause pain for the patient or not. And when you talk to experts like Stephen Black, et cetera, most patients who have an 18 millimeter stent put in will have chronic back pain for a period of time. And therefore, most of the time, the question is between a 14 and a 16 millimeter stent with these Neville lesions. Now, in some situations where you have a very large common iliac vein, you know, it's around two centimeters in, in diameter, you know. In that situation, on IVIS, I would go up to an 18, but in most other patients, I would try to get away with a 14 and 16, given there would be a very tight Mayferner compression that would hold it in place. And over time, that common iliac vein pre-stenosis is going to remodel and it would compress around the stent and so you, you'd lose that area where the stent appears to be flapping in the breeze in the common iliac vein. The next part is the length. There's two uh, approaches to this. Some people only want to stent the Mayferner compression and leave the stent in the common iliac vein. The advantage of this is that you're not covering the internal iliac vein and use a shorter stent. Um, uh, the, uh, the disadvantage of it is perhaps an increased risk of stent migration. So people who are more cautious about this fact would then use a longer stent, but not just longer. They would go all the way into the external iliac vein as marked by the, um, the uh, lesser curvature of the pelvis. And that's the part where the external iliac vein curves upwards towards the common femoral. So you've passed that curve and you don't have kinking of the vein there. So I'm sorry, it sounds a bit jumbled up, but as a, in, in summary, IVIS tells me whether to use an 18, 18 millimeter stent is absolutely necessary or not. And if it's not necessary, I will try my best to get away with a 14 or as big as a 16 millimeter stent. And then with regards to the length, um, generally speaking, if it's a very tight Mayferner compression, I do use a short stent. And if it's around that 60%, then I'd use a longer stent and come into the external iliac vein. So it's anchored at the external iliac vein and it's anchored at the Mayferner compression. A follow-up question to that, Iman, is um, there are a variety of venous stents out on the market of various uh, stent design, both open and closed cell um, stent platforms. And everyone's got a particular favorite in terms of how they think about it. Um, and in the past, a, a lot of uh, my mentors have talked about the differences in uh, the, I guess, the physiology of, uh, of veins versus arteries. And you can't just com compare the two and you can't use an arterial stent in a venous system and vice versa and so forth. How much of that do you take into your consideration when you're thinking about the venous stent that you use? And have you gone through a journey of trial and error to figure out what's the right stent um, in the venous system? Sure. I think all venous stents are, are a huge improvement to the wall stents that were once used in this space. So I don't think there's a wrong answer when it comes to any one of these stents. You know, we were the, I think the first ones to put in the oblique stent in Australia or Victoria, I'm not sure, maybe Australia. But, um, and certainly we like that concept. Um, some of the disadvantages of that stent was the deployment. You know, it was jumpy and sometimes the stents would would bunch up together. It, we didn't see it perform very well infrainguinally. 
Um, I suppose that the Venovo stent or the Abre stent on a triaxial system, you know, have very accurate stent deployment and they behave very nicely. Um, the Boston Scientific stent, uh, you know, push-pull system, but closed cell and it has um, very close interlocking uh, stents that, um, that would give you a very nice coverage over a certain area. Um, so I would say that they're all good. In general speaking, there are certain areas where you only have one choice. If you're putting a large IVC stent, then really it's a sinus excel stent. If you can get away with a smaller IVC stent, you can use the 22 Venovo. And then when it comes into the iliac section, you can take your pick and use any of those stents. And we all have our favorites and, and our go-to stents for that area. And any one of those uh, you know, closed cell systems uh, like the Venovo or the uh, Abre would do well um, as, as it crosses the inguinal ligament. Second follow-up question for you, Aman. Um, clearly, IBIS plays a huge role in how you identify the point of compression. And definitely back in the day when I definitely, when we were doing venous stenting and didn't have exposure to IBIS, we'd use bony landmarks. And uh, Jerry, Jerry O'Sullivan would talk about um, making spinous sure that process. there's sinus process. Exactly. And I wanted to ask you about whether you also use bony landmarks together with the IBIS and your angiography or venography rather to then decide where your stent lands. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's quite nice to, to get your catheter across up and over, do a simultaneous run through your sheet and the catheter to be able to see the confluence very nicely, use IBIS to mark exactly where the compression ends and then, and then land your stent. Um, so that's always you know, a very um, uh, a unique and you know, uh, cool way of doing it. But remember that we never want to accurately deploy stents like we do in arterial stuff. We don't want to land just at the origin of the SFA. When it comes to Mayferner compression, if you land just where the compression ends, the danger is that the artery would slip over the edge of the stent and compress your IVC. So you always have to extend into the IVC. And the key thing is try not to touch the opposite wall. So if you're somewhere halfway between the compression and the, uh, the right wall of the IVC, then that's a good place for the stent. And, uh, but, but so it would be a combination of those. It would be um, venogram, the bony landmarks, and IVIS marking, plus a marking pen on the screen. Uh, and then uh, ensuring that you're into the IVC. Sorry, third follow-up question for you, Aman. Um, what do you see? I mean, one of the other interesting aspects of venous stenting is ensuring there's adequate inflow, like in, anything in vascular surgery, inflow, outflow, the conduit. We all, you know, it's, it's the mantra we, we live by, but especially with venous stenting, uh, as we've got our head around this, we always think about, is there adequate inflow into the stent? And, uh, definitely mentors of mine would have talked about this, whether there's adequate profunda flow and making sure that was patent before you embark on it, especially if you've got extensive uh, um, femoral, chronic femoral DVT or an acute uh, DVT for that instance. So my question to you is, one, do you go looking for that and ensuring that you've got profunda flow? And then the second question I have for you is, have you ever looked at... Um, I guess, endophlebectomy or fistulas to try and maintain stent patency? And do you see that as being something significant in your practice? Sure. Um, 
that's been a question that I've been trying to answer for the last two years. In fact, um, uh, endoflubectomy was the subject of our complex venous workshop two years ago, and I really pushed Stephen Black and uh, and um, and when I went to visit him, Jerry O'Sullivan about this. And the general answer that I get is that it seems to have a lot of complications. It's a very morbid operation and it doesn't seem to have excellent results. There are some centers like Maastricht who have good results uh, from this, but I haven't seen that reproduced. And people who do the operation, they seem to be having a lot of complication with it and it's not something that they prefer to do over and over again. So I think um, for me uh, now it's basically endovenous uh, treatment and not to be afraid to cross the inguinal ligament um, and, and to come and find adequate inflow, either the profunda or the femoral vein and land the stent there. Patient selection is very important, you know, in the beginning. And I still want to think that our five-year practice is in the beginning of its, of its journey. Patient selection, we pick winner, winners, whether it's in iliofemoral DVTs or in uh, complex uh, venous disorders, we look for winners and, and people who definitely need to have the stents. You know, are, do they have a high VCSS score? Do they absolutely, the, the risks of landing the stent well below the inguinal ligament, is it, is it worthwhile in this patient? Um, so to answer your question, I'd say no to endovenectomy uh, in the common femoral artery. We do it in, in the subclavian during a first rib resection and later follow on with the stent if required. Uh, but no to the groin, and we've just been stenting so far. And, um, and so far, our results have been good in a limited number of patients we've done. And uh, I, you make a very fascinating point, Sam. I, I, I keep butting in because this is, this is an awesome discussion. Um, but um, the, the difficulty, like you said, is picking winners. And um, what we don't know is what is the longevity of these stents and especially younger patients that the, this sort of chronic sort of venous presentations um, I've definitely seen venous stents go in, in the context of pelvic congestion syndrome, potentially with patients with May Turner's and Alec vein compression. And one of the great difficulties that Sam and I often talk about is, you know, how do you counsel these patients? Um, especially if you then d decide to embark on an iliac vein stent and particularly someone who is of childbearing age and the challenges not only of one stenting, but also to their post stent uh, routine and, you know, anticoagulation, antiplatelet therapy that you choose to use. So I guess the, my fourth follow-up question, Iman, if you could bear with me is um, one of the, one of the challenges, like you said, is picking winners. And so, uh, in my mind, it would seem to suggest that trying to pick younger patients is probably inappropriate. And if you're looking at a very clear understanding of their pathology and whether you think you're going to make a difference to their presentation. And the second question I have for you is, um, is really around the post-stent uh, pharmacological agent of choice and what your thoughts are in regards to that. Sure. Um, excellent question. And, and uh, one that, um, you know, it's, it's, constantly in the back of all our minds when doing complex venous work. For me, where it is right now is that you need to have a VCSS score of greater than 10. And you know, if, if you think about it, that is pretty symptomatic. You know, large varicose veins, you only get three. If you've got leg swelling, uh, you know, in the morning, you get three. 
Um, you know, if you've had an ulcer, you get three. You know, it, it's pretty significant symptoms to get a VCSS score of greater than 10. And then if it comes to nivel lesions, I don't think I've ever stented somebody with a, uh, you know, compression based on surface area of less than 60%. You know, they've all been those patients where you can show the patient and they'll say, yep, that is shut. The, the vein completely compresses. In those patients, they're, they're symptomatic enough and their symptom relief is significant enough that I sleep well at night knowing that I'm doing the right thing, even for that young patient. You know, and, I, and you have a number of these patients. Uh, we recently did a couple who are in their 40s. And one of them said, for the first time in 20-something years, I've woken up and my left leg is no longer swollen. In fact, it's now narrower than the other leg, you know, it's slimmer than the other leg. And, uh, you know, life differs. Today, I saw a patient who said, I've gone back to the gym now because my right leg is not this, uh, this lead, uh, you know, weight attached to the leg. You know, it's not heavy anymore. I'm back to the gym exercising. So I think in those patients, it can be justified and you can do the procedure. Um, and I think even if the stent lasts for 10 years, that's 10 good years uh, for them. And, uh, you know, by then, hopefully we'll have better technology in how to deal with um, any issues that may arise with these stents. Um, and I think your next question was anticoagulation. If you have a nevel lesion and you get a stent, I put them on a DOAC for a year. I know that's very conservative. Many centers are at six months. Some of the higher volume centers, even three months. But we've just been doing 12 months after which we stop the anticoagulation. If it's a complex venous disorder, if it's a short segment in the common iliac, then uh, we keep them going for uh, you know, 12 months. And then and at that stage, if we're using a pixaban, we drop it down to 2.5 and we keep them on that dose. And if it's a very long lesion, especially ones that come below the groin, I recommend lifelong anticoagulation. But I know that if at some point uh, the patient comes off it and a couple of years have passed, there's actually some margin of safety there. I've got a patient that we did a, a complete IVC and iliac vein reconstruction and the stent on the right groin went down into a diseased common femoral uh, vein with uh, some disease in the femoral vein flowing into it. So you can think a high risk stent. And he was on warfarin because uh, of... Um, uh, he was factor 10A, uh, and and we, um, uh, we we he became untherapeutic for a period of time, and the stent remained patent. So, and we know that in warfarin, even in the best of times, 30% of patients are non-therapeutic. So, uh, you know, you can tell that these patients there is a margin of safety there. But so longer stents, lifelong anticoagulation, short stents uh, for complex venous disorders one to two years with nevel lesions one year and then stop when it comes to pregnancy that was, that was that's an important question if you're trying to fall pregnant and you've got a complex venous obstruction my recommendation is to go ahead with your plans for pregnancy go on anticoagulation bbt prophylaxis from day one usually with clexane and after 20 weeks of gestation go on to uh, uh, therapeutic anticoagulation with clexane and follow that up uh, three months postpartum. Um, if you've already had a stent inserted, again, 
to be on therapeutic anticoagulation from 20 weeks gestation onwards. I don't preemptively stent patients before their pregnancy. Uh, and the reason for that is your stent can still thrombose during pregnancy and opening up a thrombose stent is much harder than opening up a native vessel. And that's my algorithm for treatment around pregnancy. Fantastic. Sam, I don't know about you, but I think Iman's just dropped some wisdom on us. That is Absolutely. incredible. I wish, I wish we was, you know, I don't wish this on anyone, but there are days where I think, oh, I wish I was studying for the fellowship exam just to get some <laughs> of this wisdom out again. Uh, too kind, Yogi. That's great, Iman. Just a question I've always wondered, Iman. Um, I think we're, we'll potentially go on a bit of a tangent here. Patients who present with, you know, pretty uh, stock standard varicose veins, when do you consider more proximal obstruction maybe um, a part of the picture? And when do you think it's worth treating? Sure. Um, if they've got fairly severe uh, skin changes, leg swellings that are not in keeping with the degree of venous insufficiency, well, then I think there might be two possibilities. One is a proximal venous obstruction. So I try to rule those out. Uh, or it could be incompetence at the level of the third level uh, tributaries, uh, which are in that subcutaneous space, um, which we know fall, uh, you know, become incompetent. And we can see from cadaveric resin studies that these tufts of veins right underneath the ulcers, they light up when filled with resin. Um, that you can't diagnose. It becomes a diagnosis of exclusion, but the, comp but the chronic venous obstruction can. So, I guess nowadays I have a lower threshold. If a patient comes in, you know, very swollen left leg, they've got a venous ulcer, and I do a duplex scan and their femoral vein is patent and competent, their GSV is patent and competent, there's a few varicosities. It just doesn't explain it for me. So then those patients, I do go and check more proximally, starting with an ultrasound scan, then CT venogram, and uh, if there's any hint of a problem, a venogram and IVIS. What about, um, you know, a patient comes in with varicose veins, let's just say, you know, C2, so just veins or maybe even C3, some edema, but then on the ultrasound worksheet, the sonographers indicated that there's some ovarian vein incompetence. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you chase that primarily or do you treat the veins first and then uh, consider it later on? I, I, I treat the veins, uh, Sam. Uh, if they've got pelvic congestion syndrome or they have, a fairly recent, uh, you know, a fairly rapid uh, and aggressive recurrence, then I would go and chase that uh, ovarian vein reflux. But if the patient has no signs of pelvic congestion syndrome, there's no signs of nutcracker syndrome, um, and they've got varicose veins, I treat the varicose veins primarily and don't chase the ovarian vein. I know there's some of my colleagues that uh, would go and chase that to prevent the recurrence. But I think, um, you know, the even recurrent varicose veins can be monitored. And if they do occur, it can be treated fairly easily. So that can be done in the future. Very good. I, I hinted to Yogi that the chance of a uh, going on a tangent was fairly high, high with this podcast. So <laughs> we've lasted 25 minutes. Um, we might just uh, sort of just go back, Iman, to the uh, sort of... Uh, IO cable segment for a moment and just talk about um, as a junior consultant, you know, the heart sink sort of admission, which is a young patient with uh, 
an acute iliofemoral DVT, which is probably not much something you bet much of an eyelid at these days, but certainly um, as a new consultant or as a first year consultant, something I not dread, but think a lot about. And, you know, let's say you're on call and your registrar calls and say, it says, you know, Mr. Byatt, I've got a young patient here, acute uh, iliofemoral DVT. What do you sort of think about and then how would you sort of manage that patient? That's a, that's a great question. And, and, you know, now that we have some of the results of the CAVA and a track study, you'd, you'd find a lot of people who might find that this management is not correct. They would say, well, there was no evidence that, that it made a difference. Um, because I've seen the benefit in a lot of these patients and I've seen it so rapidly, and we can come back to that and what, how, I, how I marry the trial results to clinical practice. Um, my first approach is in a young patient, again, this is about picking winners, a young patient who doesn't have cancer, who doesn't have uh, any uh, reason not to thrombolyze like recent surgery, or there's no contraindications to thrombolysis. And we've captured this within two weeks. Uh, my, my approach is to aggressively go and chase that clot, get rid of it and treat any obstructive lesion there. And so that patient, I would get uh, a CT venogram. Uh, I would make sure that hematology is on board and early. Many of these would be admitted under hematology. And as you know, at the Northern, we've got a close, close relationship, working relationship with them. And then we would plan for this patient to have uh, a, a, a thrombolysis and mechanical pharmacologic thrombolysis. And then the next things that are in my mind is what's going to be my approach to this. And the age and extent of the clot would somewhat dictate this. If you've got a clot extending from the popliteal all the way up to the IVC, and the clot's been there for a week, I know that I'm probably unlikely going to be able to get rid of that with one session of angiojet. So in that patient, I would puncture the popliteal vein or the short saphenous vein, insert a catheter into their popliteal vein place a Craig McNamara catheter, uh, infuse some lytic into the clot uh, as a bolus, and then run lysis overnight uh, for uh, 12 to 18 hours and bring them back for uh, angiojet the next day. And I think that will give me the best chance of clearing as much of the clot as possible. And I'd make sure that I've treated any obstructive lesion that would have resulted in this clot, uh, and IVIS is huge help in this whole process. Iman, if I could just uh, ask you a question about that or with your puncture in particular. So um, I, I, in my training, I came across two experiences when it came to approaching the aliofemoral segment, especially when you're treating acute presentations. And what are your thoughts about puncturing prone versus supine, especially when you're getting access? And my my heart always skips a beat when you've got the patient prone and you've got an alifemoral DVT. And your primary concern with manipulation of anything is pro, uh, prox, um, propagation proximally. And if you've got a patient on the table that decompensates with them prone, um, you just wonder whether you're able to get them back into a position where you can resuscitate them well enough if that did happen. Um, sure. And that, that's always been a concern of mine. And um, in my second year of training, we definitely did a lot of access work from the 
posterior tibial vein just to try and compensate yeah. for that. And it took a huge learning curve to get to a point of comfortably puncturing the PTV. But uh, just your thoughts in terms of positioning the patient for that prone versus supine and how do you sort of, uh, how do you sort of internalize that dilemma? And then do you go chasing clot into the lung if it does propagate up? Sure. So initially in, in my experience, we would uh, patient, put the patient in a supine position, insert an IVC filter, then put them in a prone position and pop, puncture the popliteal vein. As, as time went by, we put the IVC filter in and then had a go at accessing the popliteal. And in some slimmer patients, we had some su- success until I discovered the short saphenous vein. And then, and then it became a lot easier because we, we always access the short saphenous vein for RFA procedures and veins, and, and you can access the short saphenous vein and you're in the popliteal vein and up. I'm not puncturing more distally, one, because the IVIS catheter uh, only has a working length of 90 centimeters, and I want to be able to see all the way up into the IVC. So if I'm puncturing around the ankle, I probably won't breach there. And some of the stents, uh, you know, the shaft may be short to reach there. Whereas if you puncture the short, saf- uh, the, the, uh, short saphenous vein uh, just below the knee and enter the popliteal, you won't have any issues with length. You'll be able to get in and, and position your IVIS and get those measurements. With regards to the IVC filter insertion, we all know that the Mayferner compression itself acts as a filter. So you don't absolutely have to, but it just creates a safety margin. And especially when starting off, unless you have a CT scan that absolutely shows that there is a very tight Mayferner there, I put the IVC filter in. The other reason is many of these patients get overnight thrombolysis. Uh, and, you know, they might be on the ward, et cetera. And I find that that IVC filter is going to act as a, as, as a secondary protection there. So I do put an IVC filter in. I try to puncture the short saphenous vein um, uh, and the, or, or the popliteal vein. And, of course, if the clot was just limited to the common femoral vein and above, I'd puncture the mid-thigh uh, femoral vein. But what's important is you must puncture below the lesser trochanter, which is the entry site of the profunda vein, as you probably know, uh, so that you can see the profunda vein coming in and any stent that you put in is going to be above that. And you've made sure that you've cleared the inflow into your uh, iliofemoral section. Follow-up question for you, man. Uh, just pretend I'm your baby registrar on your unit and um, I've called you about this acute iliofemoral DVT. Um, now, one of, the, one of the immense challenges for someone who perhaps has read Rutherford's and read the textbooks is that you're sort of thinking of your differential for why this patient's presented as such. And um, certain, I guess, certain surgeons may go looking for tumor markers and doing thrombophilia screens from the get-go at the initial phase. And then the follow-up to that is especially if someone clinically then demonstrates, you know, there's some respiratory compromise and echo or troponins to try and see if there's any cardiac compromise. Um, and then apart from a CT venogram ending on a CTPA. So my question to you is uh, you have a great working relationship with a medical team that sort of covers that, but in situations where you don't potentially have that and you as the vascular surgeon are the lead for the management of this, how much sort of 
preparatory investigations should we do? Because there's a good argument that doing thrombophilia screens at the get-go probably is going to lead to a large number of either false negative or false positive results best based on the, the, tumor, uh, the thrombus burden. Tumor markers aren't cheap and uh, they're a huge expense to the healthcare system. So should we be screening everyone? Uh, and then performing tests like ECHOs and CTPAs not only add extra time, delay patient care, but also add extra radiation. And so um, definitely in a center that I worked in, that, that was the algorithm. We'd have all of these things before you could even think about taking someone to theatre. Um, and I think it's fairly fair to say, listening to you talk about it, it's, you have a very rational approach to this. And perhaps that's because of a good working relationship with a medical service to sort of think about what's relevant and what's not. Sure, Yogi. Um, I mean, from the, from the caliber of your question, you clearly have a very sound understanding of this and, and most likely better than I, uh, than, than I do. Um, I think this is my general approach to, to vascular surgery is that we should each do what we're best at. And I have the same approach to renal physicians, to ID physicians, to hematologists, etc. You bring everybody around the table and everybody does what they do the best. So hematologists, they get the referrals for all DVTs in the hospital. They run regular clot clinics. They review these patients with tumor markers. They uh, review them for thrombophilia screens. They manage their anticoagulation. And, and so we've been blessed, but also um, we acknowledge that, uh, that they have this, um, uh, this expertise in this area. And that is partly helpful in bringing them on board. You know? And I think that we, we raised it as a question when we first went to these uh, to our colleagues and said, you know, this is the situation. We know that we can help these patients with oleofemoral DVTs, but they require all this investigation that we don't know enough about. Um, can we set up a service together? And so in my practice, every patient comes in under joint, joint care with hematology and vascular, and much of the investigations has been done. So they've had a, throm uh, a tumor screen, either with uh, a CT scan that would be the abdomen and pelvis, the chest x-ray, and, and some tumor markers. Um, and some of them may have a thrombophilia screen early on, or, or they might have it at, at a follow-up uh, appointment later on. Because really, a thrombophilia screen will only determine the duration of anticoagulation. It doesn't determine what you're going to do at that point. So to answer your question, I would say, contact hematology, contact hematology and see what they think. And uh, there's other factors as well. Patient mobility, are they in a nursing home? If we're trying to avoid post-thrombotic syndrome and symptoms, you know, what is the current situation of the patient? How much is this going to benefit them? Um, and all of those come into, come into play when deciding which patients are going to be your winners for aliofemoral uh, mechanical pharmacologic thrombectomy. Sam, I saw you smiling as I said that I was pretending to be a man's junior registrar. <laughs> it, it, it was the basis of most of our fellowship questions. <laughs> so, so man, um, I, I may use this as part of my own um, material when I'm next on call with an ileofemoral DVT, but let's say you've had a patient come in with a large ileofemoral DVT and you've run lytic overnight through a Craig McNamara catheter and you've you've brought them back, um, you put a filter in the day prior. Can you just 
talk through how you use the Androjet, like the power pulse mode and thrombectomy mode in particular and how sure. you do that case? Absolutely. So we use TPA. TPA comes in a 50 milligram vial or it comes in a uh, 10 milligram vial. And uh, it's more cost effective if you uh, use a 50 milligram vial than, than to use 510. So generally speaking, if I'm going to be uh, deciding on running Lytic later, I'll probably open the 50 anyway. So we put 20 milligrams of TPA in a 100 mil bag, and that's going to be used for the pulse section of the thrombectomy and then on the other side you've got a 500 ba mil bag of normal saline you can use hep saline as well and um, you need a nine french sheet it goes through an eight and a half french sheet the zelante you need a good stable platform so just a j wire would be good it'll be good not to use a hydrophilic uh, catheter so that you don't have issues with it drying and you losing your wire um, a J-wire placed across the clot. Avoid using an 018 system because it can leak around it in the Zalanta. You need to have that 035 to block uh, the, the lumen. And uh, after you've primed your catheter, you over the wire, you insert the Zalanta and you go beyond the clot. So if it's an iliofemoral section, you start off in the IVC and you start pulsing the clot. By pressing the foot pedal every second, it will deliver uh, one cc of, of liquid from your 100 mil bag, which contains your TPA and normal saline. And first you do a few pulses and that will send some of the lytic into the lungs uh, where it can break up uh, you know, fragments that may have gone there. And from that point, you get into the clot and start pulsing. And you do this slowly by five millimeter increments, keeping in mind that you only have a hundred mil bag. So you've got to ration this so that, and that's sort of easy for us surgeons. We sort of have ideas of this is the length and, and this is the speed at which I need to go to make sure I can marinate the whole clot, lace the whole clot with my lytic. So you start off from the top and you start pulsing the lytic every five millimeters down into the clot until you reach the end of the clot. And once you've done that, you leave uh, the patient, you tell the anesthetist, is the patient um, you know, stable? And if they're stable, um, and you can leave the bedside and go have a coffee. It's very important to do that because generally the impatience in us will want to get on and start doing the washout but really half an hour is very important to wait so you have a cup of coffee and come back and once you've come back again you put the catheter in now you change it to thrombectomy mode again starting in the ivc you start now with the thrombectomy mode working backwards uh, down towards the femoral vein and you also have the ability to turn the catheter and come down now the IFU is, I think, 450 seconds is the uh, limit of how much washing you can do. I try to get through the entire clotted section with about 100, in about 100 seconds. And then I would put my IVUS catheter up and I would look for areas where there is stubborn clot. I don't want to do it too slowly where I've already used 300 seconds 
of my 450 seconds and then I come back and I find out that oh this whole iliofemoral section is still you know full of clot and I need to really go at it so use 100 seconds go in with the ivis if there's an area that's already clear don't worry about it use the section that has um, some uh, clot remaining and then I focus on those areas um, and I would do that until my 450 seconds is up. Sometimes we've pushed it in younger patients with normal renal function up to 600, 700 seconds. You must remember that renal failure is a known complication of this. All of these patients will have hemoglobinuria. Their urine will go dark brown. It's important that you give the patient a liter of IV fluids, crystalloids, uh, just before you start angiojet and keep them hydrated throughout the case and post-op. And, um, and so you clear all the clot. And once the clot has been cleared, you check that the clot is gone with IVIS and then you treat any obstructive vein lesion there. And Iman, just uh, two follow-up questions. One, are you performing uh, this intervention under a general anesthetic? And then the second question to you is, uh, there is the, the Zalanti and the Proxy, which is the six French system, uh, and you, you choose the, the larger um, catheter. And, and my understanding for that particular catheter, the advantage is that it's bi-directional, so you can, you can turn the catheter as you're going around and potentially have multi-hole sort of suction potential as opposed to the Zalanti and Proxy, which is a sort of an end-hole sort of situation. Could you talk through your choice of catheter and why you use a, a slightly larger catheter, especially for the early femoral segment? Sure. Um, I mean, the Zelante has a much more, if you like, suctioning power. It has a much bigger hole on the inside of the catheter. And when you're dealing with a large clot, then I think that that amount of suction is required. You know, sometimes if you're using things such as the penumbra, you'd find that, you know, there's a large volume of clot and it can block the catheter and you have to unblock it. Uh, same with the Jedi. So I, I think it needs that larger um, uh, lumen to be able to suction the clot out. I know uh, that um, you know there are many centers, uh, Lorencia, who I've learned a lot from, would use uh, the six French solent, you know, uh, catheter, and she gets good results. Um, uh, I guess we've always used the Zalante for aliofemoral sections. We find it efficient and effective. And so that's, that's been our use. It still has a, side, a single side hole for the suction. And yes, you can turn the catheter. There's a marker on the tip of the catheter opposite where the hole is. So you can turn the catheter and, um, uh, and point it towards where the clot is. Often, IVIS cannot tell you where the clot is. Um, uh, it can tell you where the location of the clot is, but it won't tell you on which side of the artery it is because it can't give you direction um, easily. So if you've done a venogram and you found that the clot is perhaps on the lateral wall of the vein, then you can direct your Zalante in that direction and suction it. The patient's Generally, I find they're done under general anesthetic. Um, they can become hypotensive. They can give a vasovagal response when you're doing this in the IVC. And that can become uh, quite uncomfortable for patients. When it comes to stenting the May Therner, that can be quite painful for them. So we've been doing them under GA. Also, the patient lying down on the table for half an hour, an hour, while uh, you know we wait for the clot to 
um, uh, for the thrombolytic to work also can be uncomfortable. So we have been doing them under a general anesthetic. And man, probably is no surprise that I was Lorenzi's registrar once upon a time. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> the but, truth uh, finally <laughs> comes out. <laughs> You've you, you received the wisdom straight from the source. That's, uh, I wish uh, I had that. I guess the, 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 the further follow-up question that I have for you is, um, you, so you talked about especially extensive alifemoral DVTs having catheters in and running lysis. Uh, when you then bring them back, would you then pulse spray them prior to doing your suction thrombectomy or would yeah. you just crack on and do a suction thrombectomy first? No, we would pulse them again. We would pulse them again. Unless on our first venogram, we found that the clot is mostly gone, which is um, rarer in my experience. Sometimes the femoral section goes, but then still the iliofemoral section remains. So we still pulse them. I can't remember a case where we didn't pulse them, but uh, that's a good point. I guess we have to check first, and uh, and if the clot is cleared, not pulse them. And one of the other interesting comments, especially with AngioJet, is um, the significant learning curve not only for the the surgeons involved, but also the nursing staff, whether that's in theatre, but also on the ward, especially understanding what's the expected trajectory with the hemoglobinuria, the expect uh, the renal function changes potentially, especially if it's been a long, prolonged procedure, plus some contrast, plus some hemodynamic shifts. Um, how did you get your whole unit in that process? Because I know from experience that is perhaps one of the more difficult aspects of introducing Angiojet, not only getting your co medical colleagues involved, but your nursing colleagues involved. Absolutely. Well, I was fortunate because the, uh, our vascular unit, when I joined the unit, already was familiar with uh, running a lytic and lysis on the ward. It wasn't necessarily for venous disorders, but it, they were able to run lytics. And so, um, you know, we were able to look after these patients on the ward. Initially, in our experience with, uh, with AngioJet, we did send the patients to ICU. And uh, as, as you correctly mentioned, I think education and discussion is key. Uh, the discussion around hemoglobinuria, the need for hydration, the monitoring of the renal output, uh, the, um, uh, the renal follow-up if there is renal impairment. It's all, it's all uh, key and uh, needs to be had uh, when you're setting up the service. Well, Iman, I think um, that's been excellent. And uh, I think we, we could probably keep going for a long time, but that's, uh, that's, that's probably a good start. Maybe we'll have to get you back for another episode at, a, at another stage. Uh, guys, I'm, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I have to commend you on this excellent podcast. You know, listening to the to the caliber of questions asked, I think it's uh, very useful, and I need to I need to get on and listen to more of it for my own education. So, uh, thanks very much. Thank you, man. It, 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 again, if I can echo Sam's comments, there, just absolute pleasure to have uh, someone who's been in the business uh, for a while and sort of we see this as really an avenue to give back to not only trainees, but to young fellows who in this environment, especially where we're travel is hard. And for us to come down to the Northern to watch you work your wizardry with an acute alifemoral DVT is just that little bit more difficult, just being able to talk to someone and, 
and learn from your experiences has been fantastic. And I really do thank you again for your time. No, thanks very much. Pleasure has been all mine. Thank you. Maybe before we sign off, Iman, I think one thing that the Northern um, is probably becoming more known for is um, its uh, workshops. And um, we should, uh, next time uh, we hold a workshop, we should probably just make mention that, um, you know, they're being uh, live streamed in some cases and, um, you know, they become an important avenue, I think, in our, you know, post-pandemic world uh, for, you know, colleagues to interact and learn from each other. So um, perhaps something to keep a lookout for. Absolutely. Absolutely, Sam. Thanks again, Amanda. Really, we genuinely do appreciate you coming on, and thanks for being our very first expert. No, no, thank you so much, uh, Yogi. Um, uh, pleasure has been all mine, and thanks again. And hope to see you at the Northern uh, sometime soon. Thank all you right. very much. Thanks, man. Thanks, guys. Thanks very much.